We're going to be in Lesson 3 this week, which is chapters 9 through 12 of Romans. I'll tell you right up front, I have very little confidence that we're going to get to chapter 12. So there is a lot, a lot, a lot for us to think about in chapters 9 through 11. So that's really going to be my focus. If we get to chapter 12, that's bonus material in my mind. Um, We'll have to think about how to do chapter 12 at some other point. Okay, let's pray and just um, we'll ask for the Lord to, to work in our midst today. Father, we come before you as we always do, your children, just eager to know what your word says. We want to understand you better. We want to understand ourselves better. We want to understand what you expect of us. And we're so grateful for the plan of salvation, which we can have by faith in Christ alone. We're grateful that we don't have to work for our salvation, that there's no struggle, that we can just simply believe. It's hard for us to accept that sometimes because we want to do things. We feel like we ought to do things. Our pride makes us think that we're better than we are. And we just ask that you'd come before us now and and that we would come before you now and that you would help us to understand you and how great you are and how deep you are, and how little we truly understand of you. But we want to know you more, and so we come together to study your word, and what you've revealed to us about yourself. We ask for your help. We ask that you would illumine our minds, that we would see wondrous things from your word today. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, that he would be glorified and made to look great. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so... Chapter 8, which we only dealt with half of last week, is an unbelievable chapter. I just feel so bad that we missed part of that, but we need to keep moving with our our study. Just wanted to um, mention a few of the number of blessings that chapter 8 articulates for us. The blessings that are given to believers in Jesus Christ in verse 9 of chapter 8, we are told that the Spirit of God himself indwells every believer. That God not only came down from heaven in human flesh in the form of Jesus, but when Jesus left, he sent his Spirit to be in us. In verses 14 through 17, we have the blessing of being adopted as God's children. And this adoption is affirmed in us by the Spirit. The Spirit is affirming that we are his children. In verses 17 and 30, the believer is promised glorification in the future. We're going through this progressive process of becoming more like Jesus Christ as we go through life. We call that sanctification. But when we die, we, as believers in Jesus Christ, we go to heaven to be with God and we are glorified to be fully in his image. And God completes the circle. He started us, he started man in Genesis made in the image of God. And now, when we are glorified, we are made in the image of Jesus Christ, his son. Verse 33, we're we're told of the blessing of being chosen by God, elected by him. Verses 35 through 39, it says we are inseparable from God's love. I love how chapter 8 starts and how it ends. It starts with no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, and it ends with no separation from God's love. There's nothing that can separate us from God's love. Nothing can part us. He loves us so much. 
Paul gets to the end of this, and he's writing to this mixed congregation in Rome, mixed from the standpoint of some Jewish believers, some Gentile believers, and he anticipates, as he often does, questions and objections. In his letter, he anticipates that the Jewish people are saying, hold on, we're the chosen people of God. Is God going back on his promises to us? There's promises that haven't yet been fulfilled to the Jewish people. And if that's the case, then how can the church know that God will keep his promises to them, all of these promises of blessing? Well, Paul's going to answer those questions in chapters 9 through 11. But there's some hard stuff here. As we might say, there's some tough sledding (laughs) in chapters 9 through 11. There's some doctrines that are hard to understand. There's some doctrines that are hard to accept. And the result, result of that has been there's doctrines that have become highly controversial. There's doctrines in these chapters that have split churches. There's doctrines in these chapters that have caused believers to not be able to talk to each other anymore. None of that should happen because this is God's word. This is what he says to us. And so I'd like to start chapters 9 through 11 at the end of chapter 11. And at the end of chapter 11, Paul is going to give us a perspective that will then inform how we look at chapters 9 through 11. And if you were reading a letter from someone, if you were reading the letter from Paul, you would go through this roller coaster of chapters 9 through 11, and you would get to this end, and you would say, oh, I get it now. Well, I don't totally get it, but I understand your perspective. And so let's start with the perspective so that we don't ride the roller coaster quite as high and quite as low. All right, so let's look at chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, so the end of this section. So chapters 9 through 11 are a section, because we're reading four chapters a week in Romans, we read chapter 12 this week, but chapter 12 is really the start of the last section of Romans, the start of the practical section, where he goes from talking about doctrine to talking about how doctrine is applied in our lives. But I'd just like to read for you verses 33 through 36, and then I'm going to ask you this question that wasn't in our notes, but we'll all think about together. How is God described in these verses? What do we learn about God from these verses? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forevermore. Amen. It's almost like a benediction that he's giving here. But what do we see about God in these verses? Just start with verse 33. What do we we learn about God? What do we see about him? Barb. Wise, knowledgeable, rich, good. What else? Ty. Yeah, yeah, good. Impossible for us to understand all of those. I saw another hand. Yes, Lynn. Incomprehensible wisdom, great. Another copy. Unsearchable, yes. 
Right, right, good. John. Yeah, judges do what? They judge. Yeah, right. Judgments. John. Good. So let's unpack inscrutable. So what does inscrutable mean? If you break it down, in means no, essentially. Scrutable is like scrutinize. So do you ever scrutinize something? So you get like a little tiny sliver in your hand and it's like you have to take your glasses off and get really close, well I do anyway. And, and you scrutinize that, it's like which direction did it go in? How can I get it out, right? I'm trying to figure that out. What this is saying about God, his ways, his paths, the things that he does, we can't, we can't get close enough to see what he's doing. There's no one that can draw a map that traces the path of God. We can't scrutinize what he does. He has unsearchable judgments. No searchlight can spot, put their spot on him and say, here is what his judgment is doing. His decisions are not subject to our search warrant. If there was a needle in a haystack, how big would the haystack have to be? It would be bigger than this world. And it would still, that would be like us trying to search and understand God's mind. If his knowledge were the ocean, the Marianas Trench would be like Beaver Brook. It's just way beyond what we can get our, and I feel like my grasping at examples is like completely inadequate. That's how incredible our God is. Verse 34 says he has an unknowable mind. Who has known the mind of the Lord? There's none of us that have any grasp on how God's mind works. We have trouble understanding how each other think, right? We learn about each other. We start to like, okay, I think I can predict what they're going to do in this situation. But we can't possibly know what God thinks. He is a wonderful counselor that does not need any counsel. He doesn't owe anyone anything, verse 35. So do we start to get the picture of who our God is, how great he is. He is way bigger than our tiny little minds can comprehend. So as a result, we're going to see some truths in chapter 9 through 11 that will challenge our thinking, our ability to understand. We're going to see some things that we may react to and say that's impossible. And we may see some things that we say, I don't like that. But all of those reactions need to be tempered with understanding who our God is. And if we think we can understand and put together all of these things that people have struggled with for 2,000 years, let me tell you, you are looking for the needle in the haystack the size of this globe. We can't possibly do all of that. So let's turn back now to chapter 9, and we'll dive into it. And in chapter 9, we see, first of all, God's sovereign choices in Israel's history. So some commentators have looked at chapters 9 through 11 and they have seen 
First of all, in chapter 9, looking back at Israel's history, chapter 10, Israel's present, chapter 11, Israel's future. I think that's not a bad way to look at things. I think there's more to it than that, but that's a simplification. There's some terms that we'll see in this chapter that, that um, we'll need to unpack. One of them, first off, we're going to see throughout is, is the concept of the doctrine of election. And we know that election or to elect means to choose. Sometimes it's used as a noun to refer to the people who are chosen. And this is God choosing people. There's another term that we think about, and your, your Bible might actually have a heading that says God's sovereign choice at the top of chapter 9, and it means God's right to rule. The word sovereign is not actually used in chapter 9, um, but it is referring to God's authority to make choices. So Paul starts his discussion about sovereignty and election by pointing out, first of all, that there is nothing new in Israel's history. And that brings us to the first question. And the first question that we dealt with today is what choices did God make in the following verses? So verses 7 through 9. Got to catch up here. All right, I'll get there. Okay, verses 7 through 9. God, we have three examples. First one, God chose who instead of who. This is a little tricky to get to in verses 7 through 9. Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael, yeah. So God chose Isaac instead of Ishmael. Maybe I misunderstood what you're saying. God chose Isaac who is the child of promise instead of Ishmael, the child of the flesh. Remember that story, how God had promised Abraham a son. Um, Sarah and Abraham cook up this scheme to understand the ways of God, which they can't understand. And they tried to do that. And so they introduce Hagar to the equation and the product is Ishmael. And God says, that's not the son of promise. That's a son, that's a child of the flesh, their human invention. But Isaac was the one that God promised. So even though God had told Abraham, from your descendants will be, your descendants will be blessed, and from your descendants will come the Messiah, God is saying right off the bat, it's not through the lineage of Ishmael. Okay, second example, verses 10 through 13, God chose who instead of who? Jacob instead of Esau. So here we have a little bit different situation. We have the same mom with two boys and actually twins. And God says, even before they were born, I chose Jacob instead of Esau. Now, verse 11 makes it clear that God's choice was not based on what Jacob or Esau did. It wasn't that, that Jacob was good and, and Esau was bad. It was just simply God's choice. This is what he chose. So this teaches us, this teaches us that election is not based on what we do. It's just simply what God has chosen in the past. It's not because of works, but it's all of grace. Does this sound familiar? 
This is what Romans has been saying all along, that salvation is not because of what we do, it's because of what God has done. It's not works, it's grace. This last example is a little bit obscure, but God chose who instead of who in 15 through 17. It's not, it's not explicit on who God chose, but it's explicit on who he didn't choose. Moses instead of Pharaoh, yes, right. So he doesn't actually say he chose Moses, but that, I believe, is implied in those verses. He chose Moses instead of Pharaoh. So that brings us to our second question then in chapter 9. So what is the basis for all of these choices that God made according to verse 18? I, I got only about half of that. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, right. So God makes the choices that he wants to make. In his sovereignty, he's going to choose some and not choose others. In verse 15, God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I I have compassion. He chose who to have mercy on and who not to. It's up to God. It's, we could say, God's will, the exercise of his sovereign choice. So, So, what's your reaction to this? Or maybe, okay, Claire. Yeah, right, okay, good. Lynn. Hmm. Yeah. No right to choose. Thank you. No, no, no right to question God's choices. A gratefulness. Something else there? God seems to have a way of not doing things that are, nece- that are written on paper, right? And he seems to do things not the same every time. Yeah, Mike. Mm. Excellent. Take us back to Romans eight twenty eight. Those that are called according to his purpose, he's the one that decides all these things work together for good, since you... That is hard. Yeah. Said it really well. I don't understand how God could choose me and not the person, you know, my friend that I love. That's hard, Barb. 
It is hard to comprehend. That is a wonderful reaction because that's, that's what the end of chapter 11 is saying. It's like God's ways are unknowable. We can't like scrutinize what he has done and question that as being right or wrong. We need to accept by faith what he has told us. And I love the way that you phrase that because you take it back to bedrock truth, which is God loves me. He sent his son to die for me and I've accepted that by faith and I'm just going to cling to that. That is critical for us to do. Cynthia. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how do, how do you think other people, how, how do you think unbelievers would handle this truth? God is unfair, unjust, and mean. That's not a God I could worship. Yeah. How, how, how do you think they would react, Jeff, if, if, if I could just keep you on the spot, <laughs> it, to, 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 to what Cynthia said, which was God was merciful in choosing some. He could have not chose any. So, so to be clear, there is a lot of black and white in, in this passage. What is black and white is God does choose some and not choose others. That's black and white. But to the extent that you're using gray to mean that we don't understand it, I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah, John. Right. 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 It's a good thing we're not God. <laughs> yep. Bonnie. Yeah. 
you're running right into chapter 10. Thank you. You're, no, 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 that's okay. Because, you know, we could probably talk about this a lot more, and I saw a few more hands, but I'm, I'm going to move on, all right? Because I, we're, we're not going to make it out of chapter 9 if, if we don't. And, and I want to say that, that Paul anticipated Barb's response. If you, go, if you go to verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honor, for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? He's answering the justice question. He's answering what we would say the fairness question is, and the word fair is not really used in scripture. Justice is, equity is. Fairness is a concept we come up with and is often subjective. So when we react, that's not fair. Like, well, <laughs> time out. Rephrase that, is that just? Like, oh, that's a different question. But God is saying here to us through Paul, that we as the clay, which I love that illustration because what were we made out of originally? Dirt. <laughs> we as the clay don't have the right to say to, to God, why did you make me like this? And we could apply this in a lot of different ways, but the, the, direct, the direct context is election and salvation. Paul is saying, if God's will is irresistible, why does he find fault with us? That's a rephrasing of the injustice question from verse 14. And Paul basically says, who are you? Who are you to question God? God is the one that made us. The, the created being does not have the right to protest what the creator does. The result of all this is that God chose some Gentiles and some Jews, all for his glory. That's in verses 23 and 24. The result then shouldn't be shocking to Jewish believers. In 25 and 26, he quotes Hosea, which basically said this was going to happen. But Jewish believers at that time were wrapped up thinking that they were the only ones that would find favor with God. Paul concludes this chapter, verses 30 and 32, by pointing out Israel's problem. Their failure was a faith problem. And without faith, there's no righteousness. Faith is the key. So what does saving faith look like and where do we get it? And that's the lead into chapter 10. So let's go to <clears throat> 10, um, chapter 10. We already talked about that. And I'm going backwards. In chapter 10, we'll see God's gracious offer of salvation in the present. So the first question in chapter 10, according to verses 9 and 10, how is a person saved? Let's just read those verses real quick here. Verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So we have these two verses that are saying b the same thing, but they put them in the inverse order. What, and so that tells us that the order is really not important, number one. And number two, it tells us that we're really talking about the same thing. So what are those two things that are listed here? Believe in your heart is one, and confess with your mouth. So we have two actions going on belief and confession 
So let's, let's just unpack them for a minute. First of all, in verse 9, what is it that we are to confess? That Jesus is Lord. He is sovereign. The Greek word that is used here, if you go to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the, those translators took this Greek word and used it where Jehovah, Yahweh, was used in the Old Testament. That is what they were saying about who to believe in, that Jesus is Yahweh. He is the God of the Old Testament. This is his personal name. And what is it that we are to believe in our hearts? The resurrection is true. That God raised him from the dead. And what is the result? End of verse 9. You will be saved. Wow. It's that simple. And then verse 10 basically rephrases it, but puts it in theological terms. For with the heart one believes and is what? Justified. Sound familiar? Chapter 4. Abraham believed and it was counted to him for righteousness. He was justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Saved is the more general word for salvation. I think these verses are probably the source of the common phrase, you need to accept Jesus into your heart, which to me feels a little squishy. And I don't think it's probably the term that we should use when evangelizing. We should use what the Bible says. You need to confess who Jesus is and believe that God raised him from the dead. This is what you need to do. So how can we be sure then that simple faith, I am directionally challenged this morning. How can we be sure that simple faith is enough to save us? Let's look at verses 11 through 13. What's our answer here? It's God's promise. God said so, he doesn't lie. Anybody else? Let's go through it. Verse 11, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. What does Paul cite as his authority for those statements that if you confess, believe, you'll be saved? Scripture, for the scripture says. Scripture is reliable. It can be counted on because it is God's word. God promised it. Verse 12, it doesn't matter who you are. You can still be saved. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. God gives the riches of his grace to all who call on him, everyone. Verse 13, another scriptural promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul's quoting from Joel 2.32 at this point. Back to the Old Testament scriptures to prove to these Jewish believers that what he's saying is not aberrational. It is the truth. So it sounds like man has the, exer- has the freedom to exercise his will to either call on God in faith or not. So... Are you reading my notes? It's a dichotomy, right? It's like we have men can 
exercise the free will to call on the name of the Lord and be saved. And we have God having chosen us before the foundations of the world, Colossians, right? Should have looked that up. How do we wrap that together? Well, let's look at what verses 14 and 15 say. We're going to get there with an answer that says we can't reconcile it, but just what what does the passage say to us? No, no, Uh, you're going exactly where I wanted you to go. That is perfect. So verse 14, so so this question is then, how can someone call on, on whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in whom they have never heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, conclusion, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So there's this process by which people can hear and be saved. I'm just going to keep my finger on the right button. In order for them to call, in order for them to believe, they have to hear. And in order for them to hear, someone's got to tell them the gospel that is preaching. Preaching just isn't what happens on, here at 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Preaching is anytime we proclaim the gospel. And how can someone preach unless they have been sent? So given the importance of faith in salvation, someone exercises faith in order to call on the name of the Lord, to believe, where does faith come from? So where do you get that? Earlier in Romans, it's also in Ephesians is what I was thinking, right? So Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, so we're saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, it referring to faith. So faith is a gift that God gives. Faith is given through the channel of God's word. Specifically in this verse, verse 17, the word of Christ. So commentators interpret word of Christ as specifically meaning the gospel. So I was thinking, well, does word of Christ mean the words that Jesus said when he was on earth? Okay, maybe. Is it a, is it a subset of God's word of totality? Perhaps, but it is probably referring to the gospel itself. So faith is not self-generated. Faith is a work of God in and of itself. We can't just decide to have faith. So faith is a work of God's spirit using God's word to accomplish God's promise. God's promise is if you believe you'll be saved. And he uses his spirit interacting with the the words of the gospel to create faith in us. That's why it's so important that we tell people the gospel because that is the channel through which faith can be delivered to them and they can believe. I still haven't answered Barb's question. 
And that's where we come to the point where we can take a position and we could say, it's all election. And we could take a position that says, it's all free will. But the Bible is teaching both. And so we say, if the Bible is teaching it, I believe it, even if I can't completely understand it. And that may feel to some like a cop-out. That may feel to some like a watering down of scripture. I don't think it is either of those things. To me, it is a fair interpretation of God's word that he's put in front of us. So I, I have spent a lot of time in Romans 9 through 11 over the last few weeks. I actually dreamed about this. <laughs> and I got to the point where I realized, uh, okay, I may be spending just a bit too much time on it. So in chapter 10, it closes with Paul quoting Isaiah in verse 21, in, in, it says, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. He's talking to Israel. So even though Israel has not obeyed the gospel, <clears throat> he is, God is still waiting with open arms for them to come in faith and believe. Paul, at the beginning of chapter 10, said, it's my heart's desire and prayer to God for them that they may be saved. Well, if he knows that they're not all going to be saved, why is he praying for them? Because he doesn't know who's going to be saved and who's not. This is our obligation. In the beginning of chapter 9, he says, I love my people so much, I would even give up my own salvation if they could be saved. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I, I don't love people like that. So, there's still Jewish believers that are wondering if God has been faithful to his promises because they are so locked into Israel's God's chosen people that Paul feels a need to continue to explain. And he, and he talks about this concept of a remnant in Israel being saved. And so we get to chapter 11, and there's a rhetorical question that opens it that Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And he, this is one of those classic rhetorical questions where the answer is obviously no. I think this is actually the last one in the book. There was 10 of them, I believe. The answer is emphatic. God has not rejected Israel. He has not given up with them, on them. He has not cast them away. So what are the examples that he has used in chapter 11 to show that God has preserved a remnant for the future? Two examples. Exhibit A. I give you Paul. Good. All right. Exhibit B. Who's exhibit B? I'm hearing pieces. Elijah and the 7,000s. Yes, yeah, so he looks back to Elijah, and Elijah was saying, oh, poor me. I'm the only one in Israel who believes. Coming off of one of the most spectacular demonstrations of God's power in the Old Testament. He's feeling sorry for himself, he's depressed, he's feeling threatened, and God says, listen, you don't know what you're talking about. There's 7,000 prophets who have not bowed the knee to Baal, who are still loyal to me. That, those are both examples that God is preserving a remnant in Israel. So even though only a small number of Jewish people had faith in God at the time of Paul's writing, that wasn't a new thing. Just like God choosing 
Jacob versus Esau, his choice of some and not others was not a new thing. So in verse 6, he then applies this historical lesson to the present day that there is a remnant chosen by grace. And the fact that there is a remnant continuing shows that God is still in the business of keeping his promises. God is faithful, and we can trust in that. In particular, God promised to save all who believed. His promises to Israel are not like the boy who cried wolf, who can't be believed because he said it one too many times. God promised to save all who believe. This is the way it worked in the Old Testament. Abraham was saved by faith. He can be trusted to continue to save anyone who believes on him. Let that resonate for just a minute. God can be God promised to save all who believe. He can be trusted to save anyone who believes on him. God can be trusted. What's another word for trust? Belief or faith. He can be trusted to do what? To save us. When we do what? When we believe. It all comes back to faith. He wants us to believe. He talks about Israel not continuing to believe as Israel's stumbling. Refers to him as stumbling over a stumbling block in in verse 9. And then he gives a couple of illustrations in verses 17 through 24. And this, we got two minutes to deal with this. (laughs) This is a difficult metaphor. So we have this picture of an olive tree. It has these natural branches. God breaks off some of the natural branches. He takes branches, cuts them from a wild olive tree, grafts it into this cultivated olive tree. And so what does all this mean? So rather than talking through it because of time, I'm, before, instead of discussing it, I'm going to talk through it. Okay, so, so the natural branches represent the Jewish po- uh, people. The wild branches represent these Gentiles who now have the opportunity of salvation. The root is a more debated subject as to who that means. The commentators I looked at believe that it refers to the patriarchs or the promises to the patriarchs. So, for example, Abraham is the root in the concept of the father of all who believe. Now, what is this metaphor teaching? First of all, it's teaching that the root comes first. The promises to the patriarchs come first. The branches are able to live because of the energy that is generated through the roots but branches can be broken off and others grafted in. This is not teaching that the tree is salvation. That's important. Because otherwise, how can you break off branches? You would be saying that people lose their salvation. We know that's not true from other passages of scripture. So the tree is more of the opportunity for salvation. It is more that people are allowed the opportunity to believe and to the extent that they believe they become part of the tree of faith if they don't believe then they're broken off this is similar in in a loose way to the parable of the soils that we learned 
from the Gospels, where germination of the seed did not equal salvation, because we saw that even though the seed germinated in some instances, that, that plant withered in some cases and was not, was not saved. It wasn't until the seed bore fruit, which gave evidence that salvation had occurred, so this is not teaching that the church has somehow become spiritual Israel. There's no indication that the church is being substituted for Israel here. In time, teaching actually has a lot to say about the nation of Israel. So this is not a substitution of the church for Israel. So in summary, it's a good place for us to close. Back to where we started. My God is way too big for me to understand his ways. There's some truths that God gives us in scripture that we cannot fully reconcile, and that's okay, because we're human and he's God. God's sovereignty makes choices that I may not understand and may even be difficult for me, but my faith must extend to trusting God to always do right and good, even when doctrines like sovereignty and election raise questions which I can't answer. That's where we are today. We'll find another time to deal with um, Romans chapter 12. has a lot of wonderful practical truth for us, but today we'll close. Father, we thank you that you are an incomparable God, that you are one that we can't completely understand, because if we could understand you, then you would be a small God, but you're a great God, and we worship you for it. And we look forward to praising you and worshiping you in our service in a few minutes. And we ask that you would be glorified through it. In the name of Jesus.